0: Chapter thirty-eight of Robin by Francis Hodgson Burnett. The recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty-eight It was one of the raids which left hellish things behind it, things hushed with desperate combined effort to restrain panic, but which blighted the air people strove to breathe, and kept men and women shuddering for long after and made people waken with sharp cries from nightmares of horror. Certain paled faces belonged to those who had seen things and would never forget them. Others strove to look defiant and cheerful, and did not find it easy. Some tried to get past policemen to certain parts of the city, and some, getting past, returned livid and less adventurous in spirit because they had heard things it was gruesome to hear. Lord Coombe went the next morning to the slice of a house, and found the servants rather hysterical. Feather had not returned, but they were not hysterical for that reason. She had probably remained at the house to which she had gone to see the Zepps. After the excitement was over, people like the Sinclairs were rather inclined to restore themselves by making a night of it, so to speak. As to-morrow had now arrived, Lord Coombe wished to see her on her return. He had, in fact, lain awake thinking of plans of defense, but had so far been able to decide on none. If there had been anything to touch, to appeal to, there might have been some hope. But she had left taste and fastidiousness scattered in shreds behind her, The war, as she put it, had made her less afraid of life. She had, in fact, joined the army of women who could always live so long as their beauty lasted. At the beginning of her relations with Lord Coombe she had belonged, in a sense, to a world which now no longer existed in its old form. Possibly there would soon be neither courts nor duchesses, and so why should anything particular matter? There were those who were taking cataclysms lightly, and she was among them. If her airy mind chanced to have veered and her temper died down, money or jewels might induce her to keep quiet if one could endure the unspeakable indignity of forcing oneself to offer them. She would feel such an offer no indignity, and would probably regard it as a tremendous joke. But she could no more be trusted than a female monkey or jackdaw. Lord Coombe sat among the Gugahs in the drawing-room, and waited, because he must see her when she came in, and at least discover if the weathercock had veered. After waiting an hour or more, He heard a taxi arrive at the front door and stop there. He went to the window to see who got out of the vehicle. It gave him a slight shock to recognize a man he knew well. He wore plain clothes, but he was a member of the police force. He evidently came into the house and stopped in the hall to talk to the immature footman who presently appeared at the drawing-room door, looking shaken because he had been questioned and did not know what it portended. "'What is the matter?' Lord Coombe assisted him with. "'Someone who is asking about Mrs. Gareth Lawless. He doesn't seem satisfied with what I tell him. I took the liberty of saying your lordship was here, and perhaps you'd see him. Bring him upstairs.' It was, in fact, a man who knew Lord Coombe well enough, "'to be aware that he need make no delay. "'It was one of the worst, my lord,' he said in answer to Coombe's first question. "'We've had hard work, and the hardest of it was to hold things, people, back.' "'He looked hag-ridden, as he went on without any preparation. "'He was too tired for prefaces. "'There was a lady who went out of here last night. "'She was with a gentleman.' THEY WERE RUNNING TO A FRIEND'S HOUSE TO SEE THINGS FROM THE ROOF. THEY DIDN'T GET THERE. THE GENTLEMAN IS IN THE HOSPITAL, DELIRIOUS TODAY. HE DOESN'T KNOW WHAT HAPPENED. It's SUPPOSED SOMETHING FRIGHTENED HER, AND SHE LOST HER WITS AND RAN AWAY. THE GENTLEMAN TRIED TO FOLLOW HER, BUT THE LIGHTS WERE OUT, AND HE COULDN'T FIND HER IN THE DARK STREETS. The running about and all the noises and crashes sent him rather wild, perhaps, trying to find a frightened woman in the midst of all that, and not finding her. "'What ghastly, damnable thing has happened?' Coombe asked with stiff lips. "'It's both,' the man said. "'It's both.' He produced a package and opened it. There was a torn and stained piece of spangled violet gauze, folded in it, and on top was a little cardboard box, which he opened also to show a ring, with a big amethyst in it set with pearls. "'Good God!' Coombe ejaculated, getting up from his chair hastily. "'Oh, good God!' "'You know them?' the man asked. Yes. I saw them last night, before she went out. She ran the wrong way. She must have been crazy with fright. This—the man hesitated a second here, and pulled himself together—this is all that was found except—' "'Good God!' said Lord Coombe again, and he walked to and fro rapidly, trying to hold his body rigid. The gentleman, his name is Delamore, went on looking, after the raid was over. Someone saw him running here and there, as if he had gone crazy. He was found afterwards, where he'd fainted, near a woman's hand with this ring on, and the piece of scarf in it. He's a strong young chap, but he'd fainted dead. He was carried to the hospital, and to-day he's delirious. "'There—was nothing more?' shuddered Coombe. "'Nothing, my lord. Out of unbounded space, embodied nothingness, had seemed to float across the world of living things, and into space the nothingness had disappeared, leaving behind a trinket and a rent scrap of purple gauze. End of Chapter Thirty-Eight CHAPTER Thirty Six weeks later Coombe was driven again up the climbing road to Darach. There was something less of colour than usual in his face, but the slightly vivid look of shock observing persons had been commenting upon had died out. As he had travelled, leaning back upon the cushions of the railway carriage, he had kept his eyes closed for the greater part of the journey. When at last he began to open them, and look out at the increasingly beautiful country, he also began to look rested and calm. He already felt the nearing peace of the shrine, and added to it was an immense relaxing and uplift. A girl of a type entirely different from Robin's might, he knew, have made him feel, during the past months, as if he were taking part in a melodrama. This she had wholly saved him from, by the clear simplicity of her natural acceptance of all things as they were. She had taken and given without a word. He was, as it were, going home to her now. As deeply thrilled and moved as a totally different type of man might have gone. A man who was simpler. The things he might once have been, and felt, were at work within him. Again he longed to see the girl. He wanted to see her. He was going to the castle in response to a telegram from Dowie. All was well over. She was safe. For the rest, all calamity had been kept from her knowledge, and— as he had arranged it the worst would never reach her in course of time she would learn all it was necessary that she should know of her mother's death when mrs Macar led him to one of his own rooms she glowed red and expectantly triumphant the young lady your lordship it was wonderful but before she had time to say more dowie had appeared and her face was smooth and serene to marvelousness the almighty himself has been in this place my lord she said devoutly i didn't send more than a word because she's like a schoolroom child about it she wants to tell you herself the woman was quivering with pure joy may i see her she's waiting my lord honey scents of gorse and heather blew softly through the open windows of the room he was taken to He did not know enough of such things, to be at all sure what he had expected to see, but what he moved quickly towards, the moment after his entrance, was Robin lying fair as a wild rose on her pillows, not pale, not tragic, but with her eyes wide and radiant as a shining child's. Her smiling made his heart stand still. He really could not speak but she could, and turned back the covering to show him what lay in her soft, curved arm. "'He is not like me at all,' was her joyous exulting. "'He is exactly like Donal.' The warm, tender-breathing, semi-dormant, scarcely sentient-seeming thing might indeed have been the reincarnation of what had in the past so peculiarly reached bodily perfection robin who mysteriously knew every line and curve of the newborn body could point out how each limb and feature was an embryonic replica though he looks so tiny he is not really little was her lovely yearning boast he is really very big dowie has known hundreds of babies and they were none of them as big as he is he is a giant an angel giant Bearing her face in the soft red neck. It seemed to change me into another type of man, Coombe once said to the Duchess. The man into whom he had been transformed was he who lived through the next few days at Derritch, even as though life were a kindly, faithful thing. Many other men, he told himself, must have lived as he did, and he wondered if any of them ever forgot it. It was a thing set apart. He sat by Robin's side. They talked together. He retired to his own rooms or went out for a long walk, coming back to her to talk again, or read aloud, or to consider with her the marvel of the small thing by her side, examining curled hands and feet with curious interest. But though they look so little, they are not really she always said. See how long his fingers are, and how they taper? And his foot is so long, too, and narrow and arched. Donald's was like it. Was, she said, and he wondered if she might not feel a pang as he himself did. He wondered often, and sometimes, when he sat alone in his room at night, found something more than wonder in his mind. Something that, if she had not forbidden it, would have been fear because of strange things he saw in her. He could not question her. He dared not even remotely touch on the dream. She was so well, her child was so well. She was, as any young mother might have been, who could be serene in her husband's absence, because she knew he was safe and would soon return is she always as calm he once asked dowie does she never seem to be reminded of what would have been if he were alive dowie shook her head and he saw that the old anxiousness came back upon her my lord she believes he is alive when she sees him that's what troubles me even in my thankfulness i don't understand god help me I was afraid when she saw the child that it might all come over her again, in a way that would do her awful harm. But when I laid the little thing down by her, she just lay there herself and looked at it as if something was uplifting her, and in a few seconds she whispered, "'He is like Donal.' And then she said to herself, soft but quite clear, "'Donal.' donal and never a tear rose perhaps hesitating over it it's the blessedness of time a child's a wonderful thing and so is time sometimes a queer sigh broke from her when i've been hard put to it by trouble i've said to myself well the almighty did give us time whatever else he takes away but coombe mysteriously felt that it was not merely time which had calmed her though any explanation founded on material reasoning became more remote each day the thought which came to him at times had no connection with temporal things he found he was gravely asking himself what aspect mere life would have worn if Elixir had come to him every night in such form as had given him belief in the absolute reality of her being. If he had been convinced that he had heard the voice of Elixir, if she had smiled and touched him with her white hands, as she had never touched him in life, if her eyes had been unafraid, and they had spoken together only of happy things, and had understood as one soul, what could the mere days have held of hurt? There was only one possible reply, and it seemed to explain his feeling that she was sustained by something which was not alone the mere blessedness of time. He became conscious one morning of the presence of a new expression in her eyes. There was a brave radiance in them, and, before, he had known that in their radiance there had been no necessity for bravery he felt a subtle but curious difference. Her child had been long asleep, and she lay like a white dove on her pillows when he came to make his brief good-night visit. She was very still and seemed to be thinking. Her touch on his arm was as the touch of a butterfly when she at last put out her hand to him. "'He may not come to-night,' she said. He put his own hand over hers.' "'and hoped it was done quietly. "'But to-morrow night? "'Trusting that his tone was quiet also. "'It must be quiet. "'Perhaps not for a good many nights. "'He does not know. "'I must not ask things. "'I never do. "'But it has been so wonderful that you know. "'On what plane was he?' "'On what plane was she?' "'What plane were they talking about with such undoubtingness?' "'Heaven be praised, his voice actually sounded natural. "'I do not know much, except that he is Donal, "'and I can never feel as if I were dead again. "'Never.' "'No,' he answered, "'Never.' "'She lay so still for a few minutes,' that if her eyes had not been open, he would have thought she was falling asleep. They were so dreamy that perhaps she was falling asleep, and he rose softly to leave her. I think—he is trying to come nearer, she murmured. Good night, dear. End of chapter 39